Hello, welcome to MikeyPod Podcast, episode 295 for August 10th, 2020. Today's guest is author Britt East, who wrote the book, A Gay Man's Guide to Life. This was a great conversation. The book is really fantastic. Uh, you're going to like this interview. I Yeah, I, I'm going to promise you, you will like this interview. I'm your host, Michael Heron. I'm a composer, pianist, electronic musician, storyteller, and activist based in New York City. On this podcast, I have conversations with fellow creators who use their creativity to change the world. I've been sending this podcast to your ears for 15 years just over 15 years now. If you like what you hear, subscribe using the colorful buttons in the sidebar and footer at MikeyPod.com or just search MikeyPod in your favorite podcast directory. If you'd like to know more about me, stop by my website at MichaelHeron.com. Hit me up on social media everywhere as at MichaelHeron or email MikeyPod at gmail.com. Hey. I don't have a ton of updates for you this week, so I think we're going to just keep on rolling. Um, I am finding some consistency with this podcast and the bonus podcast, so that makes me glad. I'm going to keep it rolling. Keep it rolling. Um, while I'm on the topic of that, I do want to say thank you to the people who subscribe on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Michael Heron. These are people who believe so much in what I do here that they subscribe at $2 or more per month to keep it all going. In regards to this podcast, the funds that I get through Patreon go to paying for web hosting, hardware updates, software updates, and it really gives me a sense of purpose for what I'm doing here. Like I know that people are listening and participating and in the cycle of the whole thing, and it's just really nice. So thank you, people who subscribe on Patreon. Uh, the perks for the subscribers include a bonus podcast that goes up to accompany each of these podcasts that I post for free on MikeyPod.com. And this week's is an exclusive bonus conversation with today's guest, Britt East, where we discuss a bit about how to keep engaging with the world as homebodies who might be getting a little too comfortable with quarantine life. So that's that. Um, I One last shift um, with the show this week, I'm skipping playing a song right now. Normally, I would play a song and then we go into it. I noticed from looking at my stats that most people skip that song, so I'm going to skip it too. Let me know what your thoughts are on all of these changes. I'm always really happy to hear from you. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for listening. And uh, here's the interview with Britt. Joining me now on the podcast is Britt East. He's the author of A Gay Man's Guide to Life. Welcome to the show, Britt. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm already like, okay, pace yourself. There's so much in this book <laughs> that um, one of the, I, like my big takeaway from it right now is, oh, I don't, I don't often have like regret in my life, but I, I, maybe regret wouldn't even be the right word. I wish I had this book when I was 20. Like <laughs> there are so many things in the book that I'm figuring out right now at 52. And you know, like it would have been really helpful. So Congratulations. Like this is it, to me it feels like a, a handbook. Is that what you had in mind? That is exactly what I had in mind and I'm so I'm thrilled by by your words that the book's resonated with you and it's exactly what I wanted it to to be like is um, part memoir, but part personal growth and development manual for um, anyone, but particularly gay men as they're moving through the various seasons of life. And so like you, I also wish I would have had this <laughs> in my 20s because it's essentially a catalog of all my mistakes. So I can maybe yeah. some of them. But that's what's like, I think that's why I don't 
or I, I try not to be regretful about things that have happened in my life or choices I made because good things come out of that stuff a lot of the time, like a book, <laughs> you know, like yeah. these yeah. mistakes are things you can share about, you've learned about, and you could share so eloquently about what, you know, what not to do. Yeah, I believe that you can use every single experience in your life, no matter how dark, to learn to love more deeply. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I've I've highlighted a bunch of things. I haven't even read the whole book yet, and I'm already, and like I have a ton. Um, <laughs> there's, you know, like uh, part of what was really, you know, resonated with me is we have very similar stories. I'm also in recovery. Mm. Um, I think we're. I'm guessing we're around the same age range, like a Generation X kind of era. Um, yep, yeah, yep. so I'm, I'm 45. Yeah, yeah, I'm 52. So there was a lot of like, oh yeah, you know, one of the things that I was really thinking about today in terms of this book and why like it feels like it's filling a need for me is at you know when I was coming of age. It was during, or like the middle toward the end of the really height of the um, AIDS epidemic. And a lot of the people who might have mentored me weren't there anymore. They had died, you know? So it's it's really interesting to kind of look at it from that perspective. It's what Do you have any thoughts about that kind of framework? Yeah, you can often make assumptions about the level of trauma absorbed by any gay man based on his age and geography. Mm. Um, the In all of human history, we've never seen anything like um, the amount of social advances that gay men have experienced over the last 50, 60 years. But there's been a lot of unintended consequences with that as well. It's frankly outpaced our ability to absorb those positive changes and certainly outpaced the culture at large's ability to absorb those changes. And so we all feel a little flummoxed. Now, with regards to growing up in the shadow of AIDS, there's a couple of things, um, thoughts that occur to me immediately. One of which is that we still have an ongoing AIDS epidemic, especially in people of color and mm -hmm. communities of color, and that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, when we think about the AIDS epi epidemic, we think about the U.S., and it's still a worldwide ongoing pandemic. Um, and we think about that period of time, the late 80s and early 90s, um, because that was the height of deaths in the U.A.I.D.S., due to the AIDS epidemic, which is so now radically transformed if you are a person of means. And there was really nothing like um, learning how to have sex um, when sex often led to exotic, terrifying deaths that were beyond your worst nightmares. And I believe that it forever impacted the contours of our lives, um, having to absorb that trauma either directly or indirectly. I grew up, I'm a little bit younger than you. I grew up fully in the shadow of it, never, never having peers, um, you know, that died of it, but being surrounded by the stories and quaking in fear, slinking in the shadows, mm -hmm. wondering, you know, it seemed at that moment like the world was trying to eradicate us, or at least the U.S. government. And so there was um, an inordinate amount of 
uh, negative messages that we were left to absorb on top of all the usual intergenerational homophobia. And it's a lot to endure. And as gay people, you know, we often grow up in a culture of one until we find our tribe and, and you know, claim a chosen family. So it's really tough to um, navigate your way in the world while carrying that sack of rocks on your back. Just You talk a lot about the despair and desperation and depression that came out of growing up, you know, in a homophobic world. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of like these mistakes that we talked about and, and in my own life, I can look back and see those were, you know, coping the way that I coped with a lot of that depression and, and that feeling of not being right. Um, but I, I, that's what's so great about the guidebook or about your book because it's it it helps say like okay so this is how we're sort of set up we've been set up this way here's what to do now yeah we are so steeped in straight supremacy that we don't even discuss it we're just now starting to talk about white supremacy i mean mm-hmm. we're not even close to talking about gay suprem- or straight supremacy in in all the ways that it impacts us all the rites of passage missed, all the traditions lost, the ceremonies that go unmarked, the mentoring that is left undone. That means our lives are largely left unwritten as we move into early adulthood. And so many of us experience a delayed adolescence because of that, that has life-altering effects and often life um, threatening effects as well. And it's, um, it's really, it's time for us to start speaking our truth. And that's why I subtitled the book, Get Real, Stand Tall and Take Your Place. Because more than anything, what I want gay men to do is to learn how to sharpen their elbows, and to learn how to carve out a place for themselves in this world, to not wait for anybody to do it for them, but to stand tall, to own their circumstances, to own all they've experienced and all they've inflicted, and move forward, to stand tall, be seen, be heard, you know, elbow your way up to the front of the stage, grab the mic and sing your song so they can hear it in the cheap seats. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that is one of the big things and it just sort of like formulated for me that that is so powerful to me about your book. My drug use and that whole period of my life, you know, I came out and then immediately went to the bars because that's, in my mind, well, that's what you do. That's what I'm supposed to do now. And that meant drinking, in my mind, uh, drinking and taking drugs and partying. And that became the center of, of my life because I didn't have a center. And I was also like very, I had a very strong victim mentality, you know, that like, oh, well, I'm gay and the society has treated me like this. So, of course, I'm <laughs> self-destructing. But the thing that's so beautiful about your book is you know it you lay out yes yeah, society is like this here's what we do instead here's what here's how to move forward as a as a whole human you know or in the path to becoming a a, a whole 
our whole selves. Yeah. And what I would submit to you is that certainly there are choices you made that are wholly your own and, and we all have to own up to our choices. But there's also larger dynamics at play that this system was rigged mm-hmm. for generations. It was literally illegal for gay men to congregate in most places that led to a transactional approach to sexual um, relationships where we had to operate literally in the dark of night as quickly as possible. Our relationships were compartmentalized. And so we started to self-sort. What were you into? Does it match what I'm into? How can we move as safely as possible and um, come together as quickly as possible and then leave and pretend like it never happened? And so, when you think about the emotional ramifications of those choices, when you think about the cost of that dynamic, you start to see the ripple effects and how it likely influenced all of our choices. And another thing that you do so beautifully in the book, and it and it relates to that, is and and I feel like this is a way that your book has sort of like showed up for me to sort of teach me because I I saw. I, I see this sort of um, well. I'll just I'll talk about what I'm talking about instead of talking about talking about it. Um, the this idea of um, owning our own histories and our own challenges as gay men, while also owning our privilege as cisgendered white men. You know, like I've I've seen this. It's that started coming up for me, and I've started realizing like, okay, so I am privileged, and I am also I don't know if oppressed is the right word to use here, Um, but your book really has a nice balance of those two things. We are all complex mixtures of privilege and adversity. I don't care what your race is, what your gender is, what your sexual orientation is. We are all a complex mix. And it's really important to own the adversity we've experienced as well as the privilege we've experienced so we can lift up others. That is our work. That is the rent due during our time on this planet. Mm. And as gay, white, cis men, we, there are a few social groups that have higher standing than us. It's just the truth. We do not get a free pass for our racism. We do not get a free pass for our misogyny. We have to each day take a long, hard look in the mirror do that fearless moral inventory that we learn about in the 12 steps and figure out, okay, where we came up short and where we excelled. Um, there, there's, there's, really, there's really no other choice. None of us are above that. None of us get a free pass or have any sort of excuse. In, in a society steeped in straight supremacy, all of us make homophobic choices from time to time, even gay people. Mm-hmm. That's also true in a society steeped in white supremacy or male supremacy. So we all have so much better that we can do and must do each day. And then all we can do is kind of, you know, take stock, have a chuckle at ourselves and cringe where we went wrong and try a little better the next day and work as hard as we can to lift up everyone around us. Mm. And that and that I love like a couple of things in there sort of like feed into this question I have. Um, that I love your experience with is, you know, keeping in mind that you know, our our role is. I feel this way too. My role is to help lift up others and to um, 
you know, like right now, especially recently, um, I'm aware that I should have been thinking this a long time ago, and also like thinking about anti-racism. Um, with that in mind, and I, I think one of the things that I'm learning to navigate now is how to lift other people up in terms of sort of reflecting back their racism. For example, um, uh, I, with white cisgender gay men around my age range, I've seen more than a few people be very like white privilege. Don't they know what I've been through? And they get very wrapped in their own challenges that they face, which are all valid. Do you have experience with how to communicate <laughs> about privilege to someone who is in that type of mindset? Yes, it is so challenging to gain the mind share of moderate white America on any topic, um, especially during a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody is suffering, incredibly busy, incredibly challenged. Our capacities are so low, yet it is incumbent upon us to speak the truth. Um, the key is kindness. I believe there's really no greater wisdom than kindness. No matter our moral rectitude, it's critical we create the space, the emotional generosity to accommodate those who would love us. We are not going to say it perfectly, nor is anybody else. We're just all doing the best that we can. So we have to retain that lighthearted touch, that sense of humor when we engage with people, that creates a space of humility and allows for grace to enter. And so when you're communicating with somebody who is maybe using the language of privilege uh, or, or stepping into their awareness of privilege for the first time, I find it most effective to be gentle, most effective to be understanding, to ask soft Socratic questions rather than trying to win an argument, rather than trying to outmaneuver in a debate. When you, in that, in that debate mentality, what I find is that you're rarely listening or, or maybe rather hearing what the other person is saying. You're planning what you're going to say next, mm -hmm. um, almost like a chess match. I think that so much is communicated that is nonverbal and unspoken that at least for me, it requires all of my attention, preferably in person because of that, to gain a sense of the energy and figure out how best to love the person in that space. Because if we leave them behind and we other them and we call them names like Republican or whatever name we might call them, mm -hmm. then we are helping nobody. We are, we're, we are just feeding our own egos. I believe that we are all in this together. That means we can leave none of us behind. And so, generally speaking, I think it requires a soft touch, a firm hand, but a soft touch. In a way, it's kind of like parenting, and I don't mean that to sound condescending or patronizing, but there's a parenting aspect to it. We don't all have equal abilities, aptitudes, or affinities. And where we shine and others may lack, instead of browbeating them or, you know, rubbing their nose in it, I find it best to gently bring them under our wing, ask them probing but firm questions so that they start to 
their own process of reflection. You know, f- relationships are not about flipping on lights, life's, life's light switches um, and, and just exposing people to the raw, unadulterated truth. That's an act of cruelty. I think it's about supporting people where they are, not accommodating prejudice or bigotry, but nurturing, nudging, and moving them along gently. My thought about that is like, oh, so don't do it Facebook comment style. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's you know, th- there is no, um, uh, there is n- no lower form of communication than social media, mm. and so <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> these things are best reserved for person conversations where possible yeah it's so it's so interesting and it's part of you know the path with so many things that that all of us go through you know there's this sort of fire right now for me to be like no i have to speak out for anti-racism or speak out against racism but it's not effective to, to do it every time or in every place Exactly. We need to paint with every color in the crayon box. You know, it's there's not going to be a single faceted approach that eliminates racism, misogyny, you know, homophobia, any of this stuff. It's going to be sweat equity from a variety of fronts. It's going to require a variety of styles modes methods of communication it's it's constant work constant upkeep as our darker natures inevitably rear their heads again as we continually uncover old ways of thinking Um, a lot of this is deeply ingrained for hundreds and hundreds of generations so it's not like one facebook debate is going to win this argument forever and we can set it to rest Mm -hmm. yeah um, I'm switching gears just a little bit. One of the things that really jumped out of me in in the book um, is the chapter about spirituality, and the first sentence of it being "I am an atheist." And then throughout the chapter, you talk about a lot of things that someone might traditionally consider out of character for an atheist. Do you have uh, reflections on that? Yeah, I first came um, to this um, line of inquiry during the 12 steps because Mm -hmm. the 12 steps explicitly discuss God. And there's all sorts of maneuvering that happens in those meetings and literature um, around that to accommodate people like me who experienced uh, a lot of religious abuse and had a lot of um, stigma and animus towards organized religion and cringe when they hear words like Jesus yeah. <laughs> or God, and it just evokes an emotional reaction. It's like, you know, and so, um, and that was coupled with a long-term relationship I had in my early 20s with um, a man who is um, deeply religious. And it forced me to confront a lot of my preconceived notions and what I've learned to do, you know, is to take what I like and leave the rest. Mm. And there's a whole lot about spirituality that I really like. And I just don't get hung up in solving the mystery. I mean, there's a beauty in unsolved mysteries. You know, in, in many ways, this stuff is beyond the capacity of human understanding, which is why the word faith exists. I think some questions are meant to be lived and not answered. And so I don't need to know what 
God is. I think there are, I believe there are forces in the universe far more powerful than me, and that's enough. Hmm. I don't believe that they require my supplication. I don't believe that there's one all-knowing being, but other people can, and that's okay. I don't feel threatened by that. I don't feel threatened by them. At this, at my age, it's like, I'm 45 years old, nobody can tell me anything. It's like, you know, <laughs> like, I don't care. If you believe this, that, or the other, it's totally fine. And I don't feel threatened or lesser than. I don't feel um, like I have to solve the mystery of the universe. Um, I enjoy the reflecting, the pondering, the process of inquiry. And that's enough just for the sake of the process, not for the sake of the solution. And that's enough. And it's the what I find um, a, um, so important about spirituality is it helps me align with my place in the universe, which is really small. Mm-hmm. And um, it helps me feel part of something, part of a process, part of a system, part of an ecology. Um, and that's important for boys like me who grow up feeling defiant, alone, isolated, afraid. I love feeling integrated into a whole. Mm. Uh, I'm just having a moment of like, oh, the book is so good in this. I just really (laughs) love this conversation. You know, like there, no, and there, there, I don't know if lessons, like lessons feels a little heavy handed. Um, But I mean, they're, they're, I'll, I'll say lessons for now. Like there are things in the book that have been lessons throughout my life and it's another way that they're presented and a nice reminder to, you know, show up in these simple, um, simple ways. Yeah. Um, yeah I, th- I think of the book as kind of a butt kicking. I think of the book as like if your older brother beat you up a little bit and then told you the truth and then kind of sent you on your merry way. It's like done out of love, but you still have kind of a black eye afterwards. And I <laughs> did that on purpose because um, we gay men are living a lie. And we are hiding behind a series of masks to the world's detriment, not just our own detriment, but to the world's detriment. And the world needs us. So it's time for us to grow up and take stock and really own our places in this world. Mm. And that's a powerful statement like that, that feels um, uh, groundbreaking is the best word I can think of, especially to, you know, I mentioned my 20 years, 20 year old self. I felt at that age, and I think homophobia tells us, you know, I, I felt, I'll speak for myself, I felt like a mistake. I felt like there was something went wrong and that I came out wrong, you know, and that, that affected my um, willingness or, or feeling of belonging to anything, spirituality, um, going to school, like all of these different things, I felt like wouldn't really be something I could do because I was this sort of defective human being but then to hear you talk about and i've worked through a lot of that ps um the to talk about how the world needs us (laughs) gay men is very like it's uh, i believe it but hearing it is very like oh yeah we have a role to play in the planet and and i and i love that um that you that carries through in your book yeah it's and it's a political statement and it's meant to shock you 
And that's what I try to do in the book is um, drop in a lot of provocative, shocking statements to wake up the reader, frankly, and to alarm the reader that really time is against us. You know, we, we've really got to start this work as soon as possible. And there is so much work for all of us to do. There is so much soul searching for all of us to do. And, um, you know, like I said, the world needs us. And it's and it's really clear. There's been lots of sociological studies recently um, that have theorized about why gay men exist. And there's all sorts of fascinating hypotheses. And one of which that is a particular favorite of mine is that we um, measurably increase the quality and quantity of love in any given population Hmm. as gay men by virtue of our nurturing ability that we are the healers, we are the peacemakers. Um, Now, you know, sociologists will be arguing about this for generations. These are just theories. But I think for gay men, it might be healing to start to think of ourselves in that way. We're not just the victims. We're not just the perpetrators. We're not just the outcasts. Let's stop these self-censoring thoughts. Let's stop playing it small, narrow casting, and finally start to live large. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that and your book really provides, you know, and and I love the, your description of the Big Brother because it very much is that like you sort of present, you know, this like an an ideal quote unquote that we might someone might want to have in their life, and if you do want to have that ideal, here's what you do, right. Um, and I love so many of the subheadings, almost all of the subheadings, <laughs> or is it all of them that start with getting serious about? getting real yeah getting real about yeah yeah Yeah, there's one last thing about the book that i wanted to to make sure i talked about and um and it's the phrase when you talk about community too often we as gay men refer to lgbtqia plus community we really just mean gay men and that you know and you talk about the way our community has had a tendency to sort of clone itself can you talk about all of that a little bit? Yeah. You know, I think about these terms a little differently than maybe some folks. Uh, you know, I think of um, homosexuality, bisexuality, pansexuality, heterosexuality. I think of those as sexual orientations. I think of gay, lesbian, queer as sexual cultural identities. And when you start to parse that language, I think it creates space in the community for all sorts of types of people. Um, You know, there's not that much that gay men and lesbians have in common intrinsically, other than our fight for social justice, or gay men and trans people, gay men and intersex people. We are a collection of communities that have made a pragmatic decision to fight together. And I think that is the reason aside from all the privilege and prejudice in the gay male, especially white cis community, that we're kind of a fractured group and we have not really stepped into our full power because we've struggled to find those bridges that unite us. I mean, we still have gay guys fighting about the colors and the flag. 
Mm. I mean, like, that's where we are in this conversation. It's like really rudimentary is maybe a generous way of saying it. Mm. And so when you think of gay as a broader culture, it can include more people than who you might be interested in on Grindr. Right. It right. Can it can include more than my sexual preferences. Um, and hope, my hope is that will inspire us to uh, broaden the tent pragmatically so we can love each other better and fight for each other more effectively. One of the things that happened for me when I, I think it was, um, I was in my mid thirties, there was a point where I really sort of like turned away from the gay community. I think it had to do with, internalized homophobia but it also had to do with not feeling you know like seeing that primarily white male gay muscular circuit party community and it not being a fit for me you know so i guess the the other thing i want to add about broadening the tent and including everyone is that it allows us to include ourselves more easily too absolutely absolutely you know, we, we so often allow our preferences to become prejudices. When we find ourselves filtering people on our dating apps, for instance, by their HIV status, it's probably time to take stock. Hmm. When we find ourselves excluding people of a certain race, that's no longer a preference. That's a bias mm-hmm. um, based in some sort of culturally constituted stigma. It's important we ask ourselves these questions if we want to lead rich lives, if we want to lift each other up. I mean, we don't have to ask these questions. We can continue to stay childish and self-centered and harmful to other communities. But if we really want to participate in the panoply of this pluralistic society, we're going to have to start to ask ourselves these tough questions. You know, why, why do we only feature images of, like you said, tanned, ripped, you know, muscular men, you know, what is it about, what is, what is the nature of that transaction? What is happening in that moment? Are we being sold something? Are we being marketed it to? If so, what and by whom and why? And when you start to pull at this thread, it all just kind of crumbles. These stories we tell ourselves about who a good gay is, who, who's the right kind of gay, who am I like, who do I want to be like? And you start to recognize the contrived, the contrivances of the beauty myth. Women have been talking about that for decades, but gay men are just starting to step into their awareness of the beauty myth and how harmful it is to society. There's a moment I always think of that is, it feels related to this. I was at this deli, a vegan deli in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and there was a person that worked at behind the counter taking my order who I saw every like couple of weeks when I went in there and I did not know their gender. And it, I felt so agitated by that for for weeks, like oh, like trying to figure it out. And there was a moment that I was like, "Wait, doesn't matter. It does not matter. Like, why do I care?" It was just a really interesting, eye-opening moment of releasing a need to categorize. Yeah, when you stop and think about gender expression versus gender orientation versus sex. Um, and we really think about how the system all works. Again, it's you start to see that it's just all stories. Mm. 
Mm. You know, the, the way the sex is assigned at birth is not really that cut and dry when you talk to medical professionals. There's all sorts of guesswork that happens some of the times. Um, and then that, of course, has nothing to do, these body parts have nothing to do with your gender orientation or expression. It's not, you know, what I, what I like to tell guys is that some men have penises, some don't, some have vaginas, some have, um, some have both, some have neither. You know, it's, I mean, gender is a, is a social construct. And the, gen, the way we express our gender is even more of a construct. It's, it's entirely up to us. So just because we may gender ourselves or be gendered by society as a man or a woman or, or, or something else entirely, that has nothing to do with what clothes we might choose to wear, what jewelry, what makeup. Right. Yeah, and letting go of expectations around any of that is actually a relief. It's not, it's not costing us anything. In fact, it's making it easier to just relate with people as who they are. Yeah, it's liberating because our biases enslave us. Oof, yeah. <laughs> I got to put that on a post-it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I could talk to you forever, but I think we should wrap this part of our conversation up. Uh, Britt, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Um, the name of the book is A Gay Man's Guide to Life. And um, if you want to hear more of our conversation, you could check out patreon.com slash Michael Heron. A um, bonus interview will go up there for patrons. Um, Britt, I really, really appreciate your book and your work, and especially you taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. It's been a joy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mikey Pod. Thank you, Britt, for being on the show. Thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. And thank you, patrons, for making this show happen. Be sure to check out Patreon on Wednesday for your bonus podcast episode. It's a further conversation with me and Britt. I hope you guys liked this episode. I loved it. I loved having the conversation. I just edited it, and I loved listening to it again. It's ah, It was great stuff. So, hope you loved it, too. My guest next week will be Izzy Jacobus, who is the founder of Animals First on the Second and a collaborator on a track that we did together. Um, you'll hear all about that stuff next week. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.